0: Welcome to the Learning Scientist podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents
1: about evidence-based practice and learning. The Learning Scientist podcast is funded by the Wellcome Trust and listeners like you. Okay, so we're here at the early conference in London, and we're joined by Ms. Trickess and Dr. Claire Badger. And I'd just like to explain why I'm introducing Ms. Trickess, not with her first name, but as if she were my teacher. Well, that's because she actually was my teacher back at St. Paul's Girls School, oh goodness, how many years ago now? I guess about 16, 18 years ago, too many years ago to to even say. But we've reconnected recently around the science of learning, which is pretty
2: exciting. So, would you both tell us about your teaching backgrounds? Okay, well, I started teaching in 1992. I do not have a teaching qualification, so in that sense, I haven't had to relearn something that I was potentially taught badly, so I've made it up as I've gone along, frankly. And it's only been in the last five years or so that I've really looked at pedagogy seriously and on an evidence-informed basis. But I've always worked in the private sector, in highly selective schools, and usually in girls' schools. Um, And whether that has its own particular challenges or benefits, uh, we're still working working that out.
3: Cool. And um, my doctorate, my PhD, is in chemistry. um, And I teach chemistry and have done so for about 10 years or so now. Um, And I work with Amanda at Godolphin and Latimer School in Hammersmith, where I've been for about three years. Um, And I suppose, yeah, so my teaching background has come through from teaching chemistry and the more teaching of chemistry I did, the more I got more involved and excited about the teaching side of things rather than the chemistry side of things. So hence I stopped doing the research in chemistry and now I'm really interested in the science behind learning. So what got
1: you both into the science of learning?
3: Yeah, we, we talked about this on the way here and I think it's one word.
2: It's probably Twitter. It's probably the fact that we just became aware of things and that's how I... Noticed Yana and thought there can't be more than one Yana Weinstein. But, and there wasn't. Well, there might be. Actually, <laughs> there is. She's a, she's a music singing
1: professor in something like Iowa.
2: Ah, well. Yeah. But anyway, I, I, I came across the um, ACE that test handle and got really interest, interested in that, reading more. And then, and then people like, I don't know, David Weston, Tom Sherrington, mostly British um, pedagogical tweeters i suppose um I, I'm, I'm just really interested in the fact that when it comes down to it it's actually quite simple it, it you know it's quite simple you just need to repeat do it repeatedly and i've spent a lot of my time being in charge of um staff development and sending people on courses and most of them are just a day at a course and they come back and they say oh yeah that was that was great that doesn't really change anything and, and the stuff we've read about in the last two two years or so, it's just really quite straightforward, but you just got to keep doing it, be persistent.
3: Yeah, I would say for me, it was definitely starting at Godolphin three years ago, um, and Amanda sort of actually introducing me to these things that she picked off of Twitter and then i just started reading more so i read read the massive red efficiency and learning book by sweller and it suddenly just that all started to make sense i think the geeky scientist in me was just like oh wow there's a way to get geeky science and teaching all in one place and this is really exciting so um so it's a lot of reading more and reading a lot of the um the sort of uh the blog posts that people have put together um, on on this and how it actually works in the classroom. And I've tried this and this has worked. And like Amanda says, it just does seem to be quite simple. I think provides quite a nice theoretical framework for things that we've sort of done before, but now, ah, okay, I can see why that works. And that's the science and the cognitive science that backs up some of those things that I always just sort of felt probably did work. And now I have a theoretical reason why they do.
1: So how in particular do you feel that cognitive psychology can help students and teachers
2: one thing that we've talked often about how we're distilling what we're trying to achieve at our school and it comes down to the word efficiency so the most efficient way of learning the most efficient way of teaching the most efficient way of just existing I suppose in that in that area so that people have got time to have the attainment that they're capable of and also have the life that is comfortable with that as well so that's really why we think it's um, a win-win situation. Um, obviously what, what you're talking about is a lot to do with the, with the learning and we can also show teachers that if they have that learning as efficient as they can get it, a lot of their other teaching and professional practices can also be more efficient and they can also just have more time because... The, the thing that's not replaceable is the energy of a, of a teacher in a classroom making things exciting and interesting. Uh, and if they also know that the students are retrieving stuff and they're actually deep learning um, and, and there are many ways that, that we can um, achieve that, uh, that's what we want to get is the efficiency of delivery, efficiency of learning to, to maximise achievement and enjoyment really.
3: And I think that efficiency, you always have teachers that, oh, I would do that if I had more time. And actually, this is a way of making your lesson time that you have more valuable so that you do have time for those discussions, but yet you're not losing sight of. The pragmatic thing that we need to do as teachers, I feel, is we need to get them good grades. You know, that is part of our job is to help them as much as possible. So um, I think it's a way of getting both of those things together.
2: And one thing that we found is that, and I've always said you should treat, students like teachers and teachers like students in certain ways is that a lot of um, teachers are worried about changing what they've done for years and that's why having I say the theoretical framework and the evidence-informed stuff really really helps as well as just sort of us modeling this and saying look this was really easy Um, but I think it's having to students are really conservative and they don't really like change and you have to really work with them around that Teachers are really worried about looking stupid in front of their class, and they, if they have to do something new, they're really worried around that. So a lot of what we do is is making it soft and fluffy for
3: people so it doesn't feel too scary. Yeah, and I think having a, having a reason why they should change something, like, you know, have a go, the evidence suggests that this will work, is a, is a reason to sort of go, oh, okay, yeah, I will, I'll see.
0: So you've gotten into this stuff more recently. It sounds like within the last few years, but you've both been teaching for a while. Yeah, Yeah.
3: absolutely. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like you had to make a big change, or do you feel like it was a little bit more gradual, or maybe not as big as you might have thought initially?
2: I think it's interesting. I think looking back, a lot of the things I was—I remember doing myself as a student of, of how I was learning about things to do with elaboration, for example, I was make the kids laugh by saying I used to explain things to my dog my dog used to sit there asleep basically and I used to try and explain things and and just just essentially verbalize things and of
3: course now I realize why that was really powerful and really effective but it just sort of yeah I think it's more again it's that theoretical framework why certain things I tried worked and why certain things didn't I think I've always been interested in trying different things and I've always wanted to do it um and you know things like I remember first reading about this whole retrieval practice and starting with kind of short tests, low stakes tests. And I think, well, actually, that's very similar to things I've done with AFL for ages with, you know, formative assessments. So just seeing how those things dovetail together. So it's not a massive shift. I think the big shift that I've done is make it more explicit to the students why we're doing things. And that I think has been the biggest shift and that they've responded so well because you say, look, don't the reason we're doing a test is because this has been shown to help you work and well we can talk later about some of the work we've done specifically with students but I think that's been our the sort of biggest win yeah. in many ways it's not a
0: test it's a learning opportunity yeah <laughs> <laughs> and you're teaching them to follow the evidence which is a good life skill
3: yeah oh absolutely, yeah, abso- absolutely definitely. and I've, we've shared some of the well, we shared your um, videos with a lot of um, kids, which has been great. We've also shared some of the um, American psychologist, I think, the American educator. That's mm-hmm. it. Those articles. So the Strengthening the Student Toolbox one I've given to a lot of students and actually they really value reading an article that feels quite scientific and feels quite you know academic. And reading that and going, oh, yeah, I I, I do lots of highlighting. And now I can see that someone who's a respected academic is saying that that evidence doesn't support that. It's not just my teacher.
2: Mm. And also we did a thing this year, sort of stealth stealth teaching by producing little booklets of the six strategies and of us posters and we handed them out at parents evenings to the parents of students who are just coming up to their public exams so the students have had them the students know where to access them but we're putting them into the hands of parents as well so if they're getting that information from several different areas they might start to to believe yeah, yeah. Um, and we thought that and parents were really interested in looking at, at those things and that's that's been really good as well but I think as I say it's really simple when it comes down to if you explain to the kids why you're asking them to do something then they feel safe they feel in a safe learning environment and that costs nothing it's just like the, the, the best cost-effective yeah. training you could have
3: is just tell them while you're doing it
2: and oh yeah okay yeah. Uh, and, and I really think works. if you can't
3: do that then you probably haven't thought through what you're teaching and why you're teaching it in that way. So I think Mm. that's kind of something we've sort of said to staff, just explain what you're doing. And then, well, if you can't explain why you're doing it, then maybe you need to think about what you're doing.
2: And so I said, just pointing out obvious things, if you ask the class question from last week, okay, so what happened in the Battle of Hastings, and a hand goes up and they answer right, and you say, yeah, great. And one person's retrieved it and everyone else has been thinking about you know, butterflies or whatever. So it's just making sure and we, we we're able to use technology as well as pen and paper for um, making sure that everybody has to retrieve. We're doing research, Yana uh, and I together in that
0: area of you know when mm. you ask a question, one person retrieves. What is what does it look like for the rest of the students? Mm. So so more more
3: on that. Oh yeah, wow, yeah. that sounds really interesting because I really I thought about it today in a lesson where I sort of said, well, what's the answer to this? And it was it was just a Q and A thing. And they did the classic thing, and I said, Well, it's an S word. And they did all the S words until the final person landed on the right S word. It's just like, Well, that's not actually a test of that person knowing it. It's just that all the other people got it wrong beforehand. So I think it's things like that that are quite helpful, you know. Mm. It's just thinking about it, really.
1: So I was wondering. It sounds like for you, you were already doing a lot of these things, and you maybe just learnt a- about the theoretical frameworks or about the you know the terms for it, and maybe how to implement it further. But are, what about other teachers in the school who maybe hadn't been using those techniques? What have you done to kind of bring it to those teachers? I think
3: the big thing is probably the teacher learning community yeah. to start with. So, um, when I, so my role at school is um, teaching and learning. So, I'm an assistant head teaching and learning. And one of the things I set up at the beginning of my second year was teacher learning community. So, it's based on a model of Dylan William, who um, suggests that you get a group of teachers together and meet once a half term and you uh, have some new learning every session. So, the idea is you're getting something external, it's not just Teachers discussing their own practice, uh, and then you discuss that. You come up with an action plan at the beginning of the next meeting. Then you feedback on how that worked. So it's that sort of a process, and to have that sort of external input of things like you know strengthening the student toolbox. We use your um, learning strategies as one of our first kind of bits of new learning, and then people go away and try them, and then they say, "Oh yeah, I tried doing some retrieval practice, and it sort of dovetailed in." with the fact that we are a one-to-one iPad school. So it's a way of getting the uh, teachers to try doing retrieval practice with particular quizzing apps on the iPad. So I think that's one way to start with a smaller group of teachers, particularly interested in cognitive science. And then those teachers, it's all sort of filtered out from those teachers. So we've had a staff meeting where those teachers have then presented to other teachers about what they've done and why it's worked. But I think it's just been kind of the discussions in the staff room and be, oh, yeah, no, I tried this and now... I would say that virtually all of our staff know what retrieval practice is and they're quite confident with doing it, that in various different forms that suits them.
1: That's quite clever so you went with sort of the early adopters or the yeah. people who are more interested and then yeah uh, then filtered you know out.
2: We, we have to do everything on a, on an opt-in basis that we, we it's not a school where we dictate a way of doing things and and people would just throw us out if we tried yeah. but you know when when yana when you came over and you came in we had something like 24 people i mean that was a normal teaching period so those people constituted probably almost every teacher who wasn't actually teaching at that point who volunteered to spend what would have been an hour when they could have been having coffee or something to come and listen to you yeah. Wow, well,
1: i feel very honored
2: <laughs> yeah. no, but that and that was a really good that really good sort of kick-starting everything. And we've got... Um, and I think the real thing, is, as Claire said, is we're getting staff uh, to sort of teach peers rather than it being us and the managers coming in saying, do this, do this, do this. Mm. So we have a little tiny thing, which is a sort of tip of the week at a, at a sort of weekly briefing. Somebody pops up and says, I've tried this. And and quite good when somebody says, I tried this, and this didn't work, and this is why it didn't work, and so forth. And it's, it's credible peers mm. and people who... People, I didn't think she'd do something like that. Some of them are older, more experienced members of staff who you might think, okay, well they're not gonna get on board with this stuff. But it's it's taking and and I suppose celebrating the early adopters and and, yeah. and saying these people are doing this, you could do this too. And I love to
0: hear sounds strange but I love to hear this notion of I tried this thing and it didn't work but here's why I think that might be and let's let's make an adjustment because really there's so much of that experimentation and they're flexible principles yeah yeah Yeah.
3: and I think that's what's so great about the teacher learning communities and actually I think that's what's great about Senior leaders being on the teacher learning communities is to be able to say, "I tried this, and actually it was a disaster." Because, and I've since reflected on it, and showing that it's not just, "Hey, this is an amazing thing; you take off the shelf and do it, and job done." Because teaching isn't like that. So, Mm. actually, having that reflection and that sort of evaluation, I think, is quite helpful, and
2: making it feel a safe space for staff to think, "I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to try this, and if it fails." I'm actually going to be celebrated for trying it, um, and and so we have a sort of annual appraisal program, um, and people know. I think on the whole, it's designed to be a developmental opportunity, not a not a judgment. So it's for the individual to come up with something to try, something a bit new to try, and uh, it, it it may be usually related to one of the strategies because you. There's not much you can do outside yeah. of that if you're talking about teaching. But, but people just trying to push themselves a little bit further um, and, and reading and engaging and trying things and knowing that they can fail and knowing that, as I say, they'd be celebrated for just having a go. Yeah, Having that culture, I think, is important. Mm.
1: So what are some of these things that you've done with students? You mentioned... Yeah. yeah.
3: Um, so the student learning community has been really exciting. So we started off a couple of years ago with just a six one one and this year we've had a 611 and a year 101 which has been great Um, similar kind of principles, sorry, you need to know what they are in terms of ages. (laughs) For the U.S. listeners and the U.S. person. And and people around the world. So what's lower six? They're 17 year olds and year 10 would be 15 year olds. So we're looking at a group of 17 year olds and a group of slightly younger. Um, so yeah, so with um, both those groups, it's a similar model. We try to get a similar model to the teacher learning community. As in, we, there's some external input from some expertise, and then they try things and they come together and reflect on how they work. Um, it doesn't work quite as brilliantly as that, just because finding time to meet with the girls is really tricky because they're so busy. Um, but that's the model. So, and um so this year with the lower six, we did a um, we took them off timetable for a couple of lessons, introduced them to some basic kind of cognitive load theory. Um, and introduce them to a lot of the, the learning strategies. But I kind of felt that by giving them some cognitive load theory background, that would help the, explain why those strategies worked. And then we did some we did some nice stuff on dual coding with some graphic organizers things that uh, Oliver Caviglioli came up with. where We're a big fan of his work. Um, so that was a nice start. And then we've sort of met with them regularly. I think one of the brilliant things about that is then we have used those students to then talk to other students and also talk to staff. So the staff meeting I talked about where the teacher learning community fed back to the staff, the students fed back as well. And that's immensely powerful. If you have students standing in front of a small group of teachers saying, this really helps us learn, and we've learned about this in the student learning community, it was brilliant. And they talked about different ways in which a biology teacher had tried to do notes for them, and that was, I think, really transformational. Mm. Um, And they
2: also spoke to our Board of Governors, and the Board of Governors were just so impressed with mm. how they presented it and how they were talking about it. So the, the people who actually make the, the big decisions in school are completely on board and completely impressed
3: by all of this, yeah. which has been good. So that's been really good. So getting that, I think getting the buy-in from the wider school community, that helped.
1: And I really like how the students are the ones who are presenting to the governors. So mm. you're you're getting buy-in from students and the students get buy-in from the governors. It's very clever. Yeah, and yeah, then you're yeah. getting
2: the parents at the parenting. And so
1: it's all in all different all directions. Yeah. And then um, the, the
2: younger group, so the, the ninth grade kids, and that was a new one this year that one of our colleagues has been working with, those those kids, because they're just starting their... GCSE, so their first set of public exam course at the beginning of the two years. So we wanted to get them, you know, while, while it was really crucial for them. Yeah. Um, and they were really great, weren't they? Because they asked having done some of this work, if they could go in and speak to the the year sevens who were the youngest ones in the school. And they came up with, well, you yeah. know, they need to know this much sooner. They need to know this much mm. sooner. And they went in and spoke to them. And we know that kids listen to kids and the kids don't listen to adults. So that's been really Yeah, I think
3: weird. that was probably one of the kind of the coolest things as a teacher was a year 10 student. And actually Amanda teaches one of them. Uh, and I think, so she picked up stuff from Amanda's lessons and then was just like, I really want to do something for year seven. So then I worked with her and her friend and then they got other friends involved. So they had about 12, I think, year tens altogether, all of which went into some, a uh, year seven. So they're like the 11 year olds to help them with their learning. So that was, yeah, that was really exciting. Taking ownership. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah it's yeah, like a yeah. dream come true. Oh, and then
1: they will tell the
0: <laughs> younger yeah, kids. Yeah. And then it will all also- I mean, you yeah. have, have to, come-
3: one of the things you need to be careful of is just, to check that things don't get lost in translation. So (laughs) that's why it's quite important that Amanda or I work with them. So whenever students are presented to governors or run form times and things, we kind of work with them to make sure that the messages are right. But I think it's getting there. There's a momentum.
2: I mean, I would say, let's be be really honest about this. In terms of evaluating the impact of that this year, we haven't actually got feedback from students. I mean, it might be quite a good time to Mm. shove out a Google Form survey Finding out whether they did use it for their exams yeah um, or or
3: not whether it got, I mean I got some very positive feedback from the girls and from the form tutors who were there, but absolutely
2: because it because the thing is um we are a very very selective school and we therefore have students who we're not when as a school we're not into this in order to get better grades that's not what it's about it's about learning efficiently and, and remaining happy and having balance and all that sort of stuff. So it becomes more and more fuzzy and yeah. social science-y. And yeah, I so mean- one of the things <laughs> so at
3: the moment, I started a masters in teaching and learning uh, this September. So that's been really exciting. And as a scientist with a background in chemistry, doing social science has been really tricky. But what I want to do my dissertation on is the effect, evaluating the effectiveness of those student learning communities can you know and I'm struggling at the moment I'm seeing my tutor tomorrow to try and pin down exactly how to do that evaluation of it but I think yeah and it is that what I was reading about fuzzy generalizations and so I was reading over half term about that so we shall see so come back to me in September next year yeah. and I might be able to.
1: It's funny when you said that you were you know you had a background in chemistry you obviously a doctorate and then you were now really interested teaching science learning I was going to joke to see if you're going to maybe pursue some more yeah. <laughs> higher
3: education and, and, and there you are. There I am so. yeah, absolutely <laughs> becoming, a, becoming a social scientist and my uh, my tutor did say oh do you want to do a PhD I'm just like no never again. <laughs> <laughs> never say never. <laughs> oh god I can't imagine having to do that again. Um, can I tell you another exciting thing that we do? With Please students? do. <laughs> so this again this happened today um, as well so one of the things we wanted to do was encourage the Um, sixth form so the 17 year old learning community to come and observe some of the younger lessons to see what we as teachers are doing in practice so that then they can relate that to the things we're learning so over half term I had a student email me who's interested in doing psychology at university and she said can I come into one of your lessons to actually have a look and see this stuff in practice so she came in lesson one today uh, with a year seven class so with the 11 year olds and we had a little bit of a chat about why I was doing certain activities. And so she's now going to be able to put that into her personal statement as part of her application for university. So
2: it would be nice for good. next year to think about even more of mm. those older students coming to see us yeah. teaching and 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 talking about what we're trying to do. As Claire says, if you're teaching a lesson, you can't explain why you're doing something. You're probably just on autopilot of this is how I've always done it. But I think that's been really useful. Yeah. And they just feel more part of the community and there's less of a us and them situation yeah this
1: is great just hearing the energy about how excited you both are about (laughs) it it's really nice so i wanted to ask a question that's more you telling us what you might be more interested to see from us like what else can cognitive psychologists who apply their work to education do for teachers for students in your opinion
2: I suppose we started off by saying what's worked really well for us so um, especially the the fact you worked with Oliver and the the visualisations that he's produced and we've actually on the back of that we've got him in to do some training with us and and, and he seems to be illustrating virtually everything (laughs) that's published at the moment it's brilliant Um, but that That has been really, really effective. And the the videos, as I say, we've used those with the students and they've really enjoyed those. And I I don't know um, whether there's any capacity for producing something which would work with really younger kids, because we sometimes do some training for prep school so it's 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 the really the the small kids and sometimes i say oh this stuff's not relevant for us we you know this is a secondary school this isn't relevant for us and i know it's just relevant for everybody so um on on behalf of those i i I just wonder whether there is something that could be done for you know five six-year-olds to understand um a a bit more metacognitively about what they're what they're doing
3: so one of the things i've particularly appreciated recently is the eef the Education Endowment Foundation, um, they produced a guidance on metacognition, which is really good because it sort of summarises everything, it's got some clear things, it's got links to some of the research, um, the original academic papers, but it also has concrete examples about how that can be applied in the classroom, And I think that's what teachers need. Um, I, for my masters, am reading some of the original papers, but actually in terms of what we do with teaching the teachers at our school, some of those... um, yeah, those summaries that bring it together with some examples of how it uses. I think that's brilliant. So I think you were interviewed by Carl Hendrick and Robin McPherson, weren't you, for their book. It's those sorts of things I think are really, really helpful. Um, and what else do we put here? Ah, yes. So one of the things we're struggling with at the moment with our students is this idea of note taking. And I know there's a lot of research that has gone on about taking notes on laptops or iPads or and there was something Amanda sent around recently from, yeah. I think, you, which was about annotating PowerPoint handouts versus long hand notes. That sort of stuff, I think, is quite interesting. It would be great to have a really clear summary of having looked at all of this and taken in, done a review of it and a systematic review. These are the recommendations for doing that. A nice, clear thing that we could then share with students. So it's not just us going, actually, you know what? Put your iPad away, put your laptop away, get out a pen and paper, and that will be more effective. So I think those sorts of clear summaries would be really helpful. Um, and for the older students, things like the strengthening the student toolbox, it's written in language which is eight, which a which which is you know 17-year-old or 15-year-old can understand. So I think those sorts of things, that sort of bridge between the real academic papers and something that students can understand.
2: That was interesting. I saw something um I think it was in The Guardian a couple of months ago, um, st- a student's guide to revision and I thought, oh God, it'll be all about highlighting and da-da-da. So I looked at it, and the first thing she said, what I like to do first is blurting. And, and what she meant by blurting was a sort of brain dump thing, but had called it blurting. And I could see why she called it blurting, and I tried that out with the students, and they liked that better than brain dump. I have seen knowledge vomit as well, which yeah. I don't like. But um, so nice. but I remember saying to, to my kids before their exams, if I want you to remember one thing at the moment before your exams is don't do anything, don't open any book until you've got a big piece of paper and just done a brain dump before you start reading anything so it's clear that they come up with their own terminology which is mm. a, appeals to them and makes sense <laughs> to them um, but it's nice to know that they are sort of talking about that sort of that sort of stuff it's great. great well thank you so much thank you this is really exciting to hear all the things
3: that you've been doing well thank you for all that you have done to inspire us
1: the learning scientist podcast is funded by the welcome trust and listeners like you